0: Go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. That's in the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, John chapter 2. You guys feeling all right? You okay, Kev? You okay? Great, he gave me a thumbs up. I appreciate it. John chapter 2. Eccentric uh, British writer, Alan Moore, his magnum opus is widely considered to actually be a comic book miniseries called Watchmen. It was released in 1986. And in Watchmen, a character called Rorschach tells a really interesting joke, a joke that has a legacy after the fact, and it goes thusly, and I quote, Heard joke once, man goes to doctor, says he's depressed, says life seems harsh and cruel, says he feels all alone in a threatening world where what lies ahead is vague and uncertain. Doctor says, treatment is simple. Great clown, Poliachi is in town tonight. Go and see him. That should pick you up. Man bursts into tears, says, but doctor, I am Pagliacci. Rorschach concludes, good joke, everybody laugh, roll on snare drum, curtains. In 2014, uh, actually following the death of Robin Williams, Rorschach's joke about Pagliacci was commandeered by the internet and the secret sadness of Williams became a meme for a brief period. But before that, in 1986, Alan Moore's Rorschach character invited us behind the secret curtain of even the outwardly exuberant, people are sad. A plague of sadness haunts humanity, even the seemingly joyful. Now, fast forward 14 years to the year 2000, I'm going somewhere with this, CBS aired a mini-series about Jesus of Nazareth on primetime television. Jesus this time around was played by none other than Jeremy Sisto. If you're thinking, who the heck is Jeremy Sisto? Well, he also played, most importantly I would argue, uh, Elton in the wonderful 1995 teen comedy Clueless, which I saw in theaters several times. This is Elton in Clueless. Uh, That was the biggest high-res picture I could find. Um, A few years later, uh, his acting chops developed to the degree that he apparently was prepared to play a Jewish man from the ancient Near East. So, um, here Jeremy Sisto is as Jesus. That's the devil behind him. Uh, This is the temptation narrative. Again, high-res, best high-res picture I could find. Now I have no idea the circumstances that led to the casting decision, um, but dramatization though it may be, it of course represents at least a few glaring inaccuracies, you know, that being that Jesus wasn't white, he was not American, he did not speak English, which was a language that wouldn't exist for a few centuries. Jesus was Jewish, he spent most of his infanthood and some of his childhood in Africa. He lived and worked in Palestine. We think Jesus may have actually been trilingual. Uh, He spoke Aramaic primarily, but he also spoke some Hebrew, and he likely spoke Koine Greek. So, sure, Jeremy Sisto's white American English-speaking Jesus isn't exactly historically accurate. That's fine. It's a major network. You know, they're, they're doing their thing. Nonetheless... In the year 2000, it was weird. A major network Jesus miniseries was a a much-discussed television event. It was controversial, and it seemed like everywhere I went, people were like, you watching that Jesus show? And I watched it. I remember uh, one striking aspect of Sisto's depiction of Jesus, and it was this. He played Jesus happy. Jeremy Sisto's Jesus smiled all the time. He laughed, he cracked jokes, he had fun. The other stuff was all there, too. The sorrow, flipping tables over in the temple, the the agonizing execution, all that stuff was there. But generally, in this miniseries, Jesus seemed a happy dude. And I remember thinking, man, that's amazing. Could that be accurate? After all, Jesus is popularly depicted as enduring like a perpetual bummer. He's stoic and straight-faced and gloomy. And yet, one Old Testament prophecy quoted to describe Jesus in the New Testament reads thusly, About the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Sure. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Sure, that sounds like Old Testament stuff. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. There's that. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions. How? By anointing you with the oil of joy. More than any of his companions, Jesus was anointed with the oil of joy. And really, it shouldn't come as such a stretch. You know, does God, who is a good father, want his children to know joy? Yes, great, great job. You're awake, thank you. Would Jesus, who best represents the Father and best knew the Father, be a joyful person? Well, sure, when you put it like that, it stands to reason he would be joyful. And yet, Jeremy Sisto's smiling, joking Jesus kind of caught me off guard. I was like, whoa, this is weird, and I liked it. Something about it spoke to me. I had yet to consider Jesus was anointed with joy, a happy person, let alone more so than anyone else, the happiest human being who ever lived. And yet, though that's what the scriptures seem to clearly communicate, many do not approach Jesus for basic, consistent, dispositional joy, stoic joy maybe, meaning like, you know, the joy in the storm or whatever. Um, intellectual joy, meaning you understand that God's good, yeah, that makes sense. Spiritual joy, whatever the heck that means, yeah, sure. But to be a generally happy person, get that from Jesus? That seems weird. I mean, maybe like a TED talk, an inspirational speech, a meditation, mindfulness, the Dalai Lama, Tyler Durden, rather than the happiest guy who's ever lived, it seems strange to me. So, with that in mind, let's read a story from the life of Jesus about joy. Look down at your Bibles, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. You guys there? Great. Chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 1 says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, this is well into the wedding, days into the wedding, actually, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. "'Woman, why do you involve me?' Jesus replied. By the way, it's not a derogatory term. "'My hour has not yet come.' His mother said to his servants, "'Do whatever he tells you.'" It's like she's not even listening. She's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Listen, do whatever this guy's going to tell you. "'Nearby stood six stone water jars, "'the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, "'each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. "'Jesus said to the servants, "'Fill the jars with water,' "'so they filled them to the brim. "'Then he told them, "'Now draw some out "'and take it to the master of the banquet.'" They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water, and it had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. Now pay attention to this last line, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now that line what Jesus did here in Cana obviously refers to the aforementioned story what we've just read and what was all that? Well the scripture says that it was a sign which is something that draws attention to something else. And to what was the miracle drawing attention? In this case it's the revelation of Jesus' glory now, when you hear the word glory, try not to go to the weird, ambiguous term that's often puffed up around the church. Don't think of glory as in like the celebration, someone's so great, so glorious. Um, don't think of, you know, the church word glory that hardly means anything at all for most of us. In the scriptures, glory is actually a multifaceted term. And among them, uh, it means God's presence when he's actually somewhere. And it means God's person so think of God's glory in the temple appearing as a cloud in the Old Testament it indicated where God actually was his presence and it kind of revealed what God was like this too the water into wine is an indication of where God is and what God is like in this case God goes to parties to have fun to celebrate he goes to weddings he stays a long time and when the party supplies run down God makes more, and apparently the stuff is really good. It's not the cheap counterfeit stuff, it's quality. If you happen to be the one or two people in here who are teetotalers, don't drink alcohol like me, just replace the wine in the story with someone like, something like snacks, you know, really excellent snacks. When I invite friends to my house to like screen a film or play D&D or just hang out or whatever, one thing is for sure. It's always like a text thread going like, who's bringing what snacks? Snacks are important. They make the hangout go round. And Jesus is also aware of that. He's like, uh, he wants to keep the party going, apparently. He is, as a friend of mine puts it, a master artist of joy. And this is, of course, one isolated anecdote in one biography of Jesus. Read the Gospels. In fact, read the Gospels daily, repeatedly, all the time. You'll find a Jesus who goes from table to table, party to party, to the degree that he gets accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. He wasn't, of course, but there's a reason for the accusation. And more than that, Jesus is funny when you read the Gospels. He makes jokes. He actually uses sarcasm. He causes mischief. He gets his friends kind of a a good-natured, hard time. And it, it shouldn't come as such a stretch. Think about it. From all sorts of people, from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of walks of life and different issues, regularly flock to Jesus in the story, they follow him around, they want to know what he's all about, and sure, that has to do with like his incredible teaching, with the miracles that he's constantly performing, totally. Um, but the scriptures also say, believe it or not, it was because people just liked. Jesus they favored him they thought this guy's really fun to be around there he was magnetic he was interesting he liked to celebrate he liked to enjoy the company of friends Um, a friend of mine hosts an annual Halloween party in his apartment tiny apartment tons of people packed in there they dress up Uh, it gets all musty from the crowd you know the walls are sweating and stuff There's dancing and like candy corn, all that sort of stuff. And one year, we were all in there and the party's energy had kind of waned a bit naturally. We'd been in there for a while. And uh, people started to have conversations like, I don't know, it's getting late, is it time to roll out here? But then Mike showed up. Our very own Mike Jensen walked into the party. Is Mike in here, is he downstairs? Where's Mike? Oh, there he is, yeah, so then Mike showed up. His costume was a bathrobe and a wig. We didn't know why and no one cared. He strolled in with little more than a word and there was like a song playing, and he just got down. People were just hanging out and like eating food and stuff, and here he comes. And it was, it was on. Suddenly everyone was dancing. It went insane. One guy was like throwing candy corn over the crowds of people. It was like raining on everyone, and the guys whose apartment it was was like, please stop, stop, you know. Um, I climbed on top of his refrigerator and I was trying to shake it over. It was this amazing moment. And, and, and the party kept going, and, you know, the next year everyone was asking, Mike, are you, you going to be there? When are you going to get there? You know, when he wasn't there on time, we're like, oh my gosh, what's Mike going to do? You know, it was a lot of pressure. Um, and that's honestly... What Jesus was like. Maybe not the bathrobe and the wig per se, but he made things more fun. People wanted to be around Jesus for that reason among others. The people who didn't enjoy Jesus' company in the story were the rule-mincing religious fundamentalists. We all know how fun those guys are. So the joy of Jesus is precisely why his followers are commanded many times over to themselves be joyful. In John 15, Jesus himself says this, I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. In the following chapter, he says this, until now you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. A bit later, I am coming to you now, he says to God, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they, my disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. The New Testament authors, after Jesus, continue in this thread. Look at what Paul says in Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and what? Joy in the Holy Spirit. This is from 1 Peter. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And yet... Down through the ages, before and after Jesus, wise sages and thoughtful uh, philosophers and mystics have argued that the whole of human existence actually runs contrary to joy. (coughs) The four noble truths of the Buddha begin with this conceit, and I quote, Now this is the noble truth of suffering, birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering, union with what is displeasing is suffering, separation from what is pleasing is suffering, not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering, and it's not actually unique in all the world. Neo-Platonism, the Taoism, the I Ching also argued that to exist is to suffer. More recently, super controversial clinical psychologist and best-selling author Jordan Peterson has begun to articulate the same view, saying this, Life is suffering. That's clear. There's no more basic, irrefutable truth. He goes on to say, The idea that life is suffering is a tenet, in one form or another, of every major religious doctrine. Buddhists stated directly, Christians, he thinks, illustrate it with the cross. And there are dimensions of truth in that. Namely, that irrevocably tethered to our very existence is the inevitability of pain. It's going to hurt to be alive at some point or another. But the coherence and all these different worldviews and philosophical agendas diverge wildly when we begin to ask why we suffer and then to conceive of a way forward through suffering So the Buddhists argue that we suffer because of attachments, the nihilists argue that we suffer because life is ultimately meaningless. For Peterson, it's our finiteness that makes us suffer, the ever-present threat of non-being or death births anxiety and vulnerability and pain. But in the story of the scriptures, however, human beings suffer because the entire universe has been raided by an enemy and as a result humanity is tragically bent away from what is good, namely God, and toward what destroys us, which is life apart from God. As the T-800 admits to John Connor in Terminator 2, it is in your nature to destroy yourselves. The worldview of the disciple of Jesus also differs in its answer. To suffering. So for the Buddhists or Hindus, one must face an ongoing cycle of reincarnation until the wheel of suffering can be stopped. For the nihilist, freedom is available in embracing the ultimate meaningless of pain. Losing all hope is freedom. Peterson disagrees. He argues that the answer is in justification of our being. He urges his readers to avoid the terrible consequences of embracing nihilism, consequences he thinks characterize the unthinkable atrocities of the 20th century. But what does the way of Jesus teach about suffering theologian lewis mead said this to miss out on joy is to miss out on the reason for your existence so let's approach approach this question by first presupposing two important realities taught by the scriptures the first is easy and it's that God is the most joyful being in the entire universe The scriptures teach that Jesus is the truest representation of the very essence of who God is. God has always looked like Jesus and Jesus has always looked like God. They are never dissimilar and Jesus is happy. The prophecy we read a bit earlier that Jesus was, quote, anointed with oil, the oil of joy above all his companions is actually quoted multiple times throughout the New Testament. In today's language that's like saying Jesus was the happiest person ever. Thus, God himself is anointed with the oil of joy over and against all his companions, the happiest person ever. And maybe you've never thought about it that way, but remember the way that the Bible actually begins. It begins with God, who's this creative artist, this genius. He's crafting a beautiful masterwork. And as he does, he echoes this refrain like a symphony to soundtrack his efforts. It is good. It is good. It is very good. Now... Work through this mental exercise with me for just a minute. You guys have your imaginations on? Did you bring them with you, your imaginations? You did because your brain's here. It's a trick question. But work through this mental exercise with me. Think of, just for a moment, a very, think of a very, very happy moment in your life. Close your eyes if you like. Bring it to life in your imagination. Think of what you saw, what you felt, the sensations, the joy that you felt. Think of a happy moment in your life. Let's do another one real quick. I want you to think of a moment where you were moved with joy at the sight or experience of something else. Like you saw an incredible landscape, something in nature, like a film that seized your imagination, an album that broke your heart, something that spoke to your soul, something that filled you with joy. Think of that for just a moment. Bring it to mind. Now, remember that God is everywhere all the time. He is in the billions of incredible moments around the globe every day throughout history. God is at the beautiful landscape with you. He's present in those moments of inspiration, of impact, moments of joy. He's an overflowing reservoir of cosmic joy through the ages. Now, of course, we realize that God's omnipresence necessarily places him front and center in the suffering of the world as well. God has been present For genocide and poverty and death camps and child abuse. He was there at Hiroshima. He was there for school shootings and death cults and disease, starvation. And as a result, the scriptures say that God suffers. Jesus suffered as well. He wept, he pleaded, he lamented, he agonized, and in the story, he's even tortured and executed painfully. So yes, in our world, joy and suffering coexist and and concurrently at that. But, and please listen to me on this, in the story of the scriptures the brokenness the suffering they weren't here in the very very beginning and they won't be here in the very very end joy on the other hand was here first and it will be here last so God is eternal a suffering world may be the only world that we know but God knows more he knows everlasting joy he knows preeminent joy in the scriptures we read that God has emotions, he gets angry, he gets upset, he gets sad, he's disappointed, but we never read that God is anger. We never read that God is sadness or disappointment or even wrath. On the other hand, there is a singular concept, an emotional state of being, a dispositional reality that we are told that God simply is. God is what? love. God is love. So God gets angry. He gets sad. He suffers like us. But before and after those things, during those things, God is love. These other things, they flow from God's baseline of love. God, whose emotional baseline is loving joy, reacts appropriately to evil in the world. He grieves, he laments, he suffers, but that's not who he is fundamentally. And in the story of the scriptures, a day is coming when God will eradicate evil forever and there will no longer be any cause for God to deviate from his natural disposition of loving joy. So that's fundamental principle number one. God is the most joyful being in the universe. It doesn't mean he never gets sad, but he is joyful. Secondly, God's ambition is to make you like him, joyful, We talk often about the three goals of discipleship. The first is to be with Jesus, and the second is what? Become like Jesus. And then the third is to do what Jesus did. So God is joyful. Jesus is joyful. His disciples are actually called to learn the art of joyfulness, Jesus actually praised that specifically over his disciples. And the scriptures say not just the ones who were in his immediate presence, but the ones who would come after them. That's you and I. He prays, and I quote, that they might have the full measure of his joy within us. Jesus wants us to be filled with joy, almost like your capability for joy is a reservoir that can be replenished or depleted. And there are, you know these wonderful instances of, in life when many of us have felt that sensation of a joy that's so profound it feels as if you might overflow with the stuff. For I don't know what it is for you guys, for me it's like tender quiet moments during the Christmas season contemplating the beauty of God coming to save humanity and the with beautiful carols playing and the lights the snow memories that kind of thing. It's for me it's mornings when both of my kids run into our bedroom and climb up on the bed and there's laughing and closeness and a feeling of profound love that nearly overwhelms my soul. For me it's late moments In the dark, when Abby and I stay up late making each other laugh, telling each other stories when we should be falling asleep. It's eating a good meal with close friends or sitting down together in a movie theater all excited or walking out together after a great film. It's in the things that are both ordinary and profound that you can find glimpses of what it means to be filled with joy. And Jesus wants that to become your innate disposition. For that to become your normal, not your only emotion, but your baseline. Now let's talk about this a bit, because I think there's something important we need to grasp. Joy isn't emotion only, it is an overall condition of the heart. And by heart, I mean the way the Bible understands your heart, meaning your thinking, your feeling, and your desire. Consequently, Jesus' methodology in crafting a disciple who is joyful is not simply to have you show up for church, do Jesusy things, and he'll just fuel you with joy like a technician at a pit stop. You read your Bible, have some joy. Jesus is after something much better than those things, meaning he wants more than to simply give you joy. He wants to grow you into the sort of person who is joyful by default. And to do so, one must overhaul the orientation of one's heart. And we do this by apprenticing the master artist of joy. And this is crucial because I cannot tell you how many people I've sat with who lament, man, I'm doing all the stuff. I read my Bible, I go to church, I sing the songs, and I don't feel the joy. And that's not to pick on anybody. I've been there myself. But Jesus he wants you to have joy in those things, absolutely, but he doesn't want his friends, his, his apprentices, clamoring for joy refills all the time. He wants them to be joyful people. And for that to happen, we must learn to practice the way of joy. So how do we do that? Well, one means by which we do this is through what Richard Foster describes as the spiritual discipline of celebration. There's actually a command that features prominently in the New Testament. It begins with Jesus, and it's echoed by his early followers, and it's simple enough, it's simply rejoice. In Greek, the word is Cairo, it's actually the verb form of the noun joy, so meaning to rejoice is to joy. Many scholars argue that a, a better way of translating that word might be celebrate. And Most of the time, the word is plural, meaning all of you together should celebrate as a community. And again, this is a command in the New Testament. It's something that you set out, put your mind to, and do, not just something you wait to happen to you naturally. It is a spiritual discipline. Richard Foster writes this, the the, the decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. That is why celebration is a discipline. It's not something that falls on our heads. It's the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. And maybe that sounds complicated, but it's actually remarkably simple. Step one is to set your mind on joy. Now, to be clear, you can't control your emotions, just so you know if you haven't learned that already. There's a, like a tired Pinterest platitude. I see plastered on chalkboards and letter folk boards everywhere in like this ornate loopy calligraphy that's like choose joy, you know. And may this is a predictable thing for me to say, but you can't. Um, sorry, you can't choose joy, you, you cannot simply assume unilateral control of your emotions. Depending on your wiring, your personality, you know, your Enneagram number, background, your upbringing, all that, you may even be more at the mercy of your emotions than someone else. That's been one of the most helpful things I've learned in therapy and all this Enneagram mumbo jumbo. So, you can't control your emotions, but listen, you can control your own mind you can control what you do with your emotions. You populate your own thought life by force of will, by habit. You choose the things on which you focus, dwell, and meditate. And the discipline of celebration is not about repressing bad feelings. Not at all. It's not about casting them aside or ignoring them. It's not about minimizing them. Not at all. It's about making a direct, concentrated, ongoing, deliberate effort to fill your mind with joyful things. The tough things, the suffering, that's going to come naturally. You have to choose to fill your mind with joyful things so that over time, your emotions will learn to follow your mind. You actually know this experientially already. When you dwell on tragedy, the thing that you read in the news, that seemingly unstable state of the country and the world conflict around you, something that's going on with your friend or your family, When you think about these things all the time, you feel pain. You can actually have a bodily reaction with anxiety and tension, all that stuff. And that can be normal. I'm not saying that that's bad. That can actually be a healthy part of what it means to be an emotionally mature human who has a spectrum of emotions. Don't don't run from those things. Don't avoid them. But as disciples of Jesus, we combat the tendency to sink in despair by rebelling against it. And to do that, you have to discipline yourself to also focus on things that do exactly the opposite, things that bring joy and hope and peace and comfort. In Paul's letter to a church in Philippi, he actually explains how to do this by writing this. Rejoice in the Lord always. There's that word. And he says it again. Rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in King Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now notice the method that he's describing. Surrender control to God. First you have to know, not fear, know that you are not in control of all outcomes. And knowing this, you embrace this incredible truth. No matter what happens, I have God. That is an unshakable reality. Some people call this detachment from worry. Uh, Jim Carrey calls it freedom from concern. Tyler Durden calls it bottoming out. In everything learn gratitude not discontentment understand at all times that God is with you and be grateful even when you face suffering and you will and then finally draw your attention again and again and again to things that bring joy and what's amazing about this list is that it's not overtly Christiany you know Paul doesn't write things like think about hymns think about Bible verses think about prayers um, he says, whatever's true, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about that kind of stuff. And I think that it's that broad and deliberately so. Paul is saying these types of things are actually all around you. They're all around you in creation, in a friend's smile, a conversation, a work of art, a landscape, a song. They're all around you in science and medicine and family and a good meal. So the idea is to discipline yourself, to repeatedly bring these things together things to your mind. Turn them over in your mind. Meditate on them again and again. Set your mind on joy. That's step one. There's one other step. Step two is to teach your heart, your body, your entire person to then follow your mind. And Remember you don't just have a body. Your body is a part of your personhood. You are more than a mind in a body. You are a mind and a body. This means that we have to do more than just think about joyful things. We need to practice joyful things, meaning be with friends, enjoy good things, food, art, nature, whatever it is for you. If you're a summer person, go to the beach, enjoy the sun, let it give you joy, however that works. If you're like me, stay inside, turn up the air conditioning, you know, sit under a black umbrella and let it give you joy. Um, Take care of yourself. Take care of your your body and your mind. Work well and rest well. Take breaks. Make space to slow down, to exercise, to eat healthy, all that kind of stuff. Take care of yourself. And listen, that is the two-step procedure to produce joy. Dwell on joy and then lead your body in that direction. Once again, this is from Foster. God has established a created order full of excellent and good things. And it follows naturally that as we give our attention to those things, we will be happy. That's God's appointed way to joy. If we think we will have joy only by praying and singing psalms, we will be disillusioned. But if we fill our lives with simple, good things and constantly thank God for them, we will be joyful. That is, full of joy. There are as we've said more than a few ways to live out this practice, the ancient spiritual discipline of celebration. One of them is the next practice uh, in our series of practices, one you'll do with your community and it is simply to eat and drink with your community and celebrate. This is a practice Jesus exemplified again and again and again to the degree that people actually wondered, man, is this guy like a glutton or a drunk or what? He's just always eating, always hanging out, always partying. And really, such a thing shouldn't come as a tremendous surprise for a Jewish rabbi who had such a great love of the scriptures as Jesus did. Did you know that there's a passage in Deuteronomy that specifically commands Israel to set aside 10% of their income for an ongoing period of time so that they can blow it on a huge three-week party. I'm not kidding. It's actually in there. The text says, and I quote, "...use the silver to buy anything you like. You and your household shall eat there in the presence of Yahweh God and rejoice." Meaning, God himself is coming to this party. Uh, The Torah, it's more than just laws concerning mildew and menstruation. Go figure. This, (laughs) This command is from thousands of years ago. And today, research has just begun to catch up to the fact that, like, yeah, man, it really seems like when people eat together as a family, as a community, and they celebrate deliberately so, they're more happy, they're more healthy, they thrive as a people. All that to say, this week's practice is a simple one. Get together with your community and party. Make it a thing. Cook out, but do more than just the usual. Break out the kiddie pools or the, you know, the sprinklers or whatever. Play good music at high volumes. Make space to tell stories. Remember good things. Worship God with laughter and dancing. Mike can't be at all of your communities with the bathrobe and the wigs. We've already booked him for ours. But um, be deliberate about it. Make space to actually do things that fill your community with joy, whatever those things are. Sometimes in our community, when the kids are like, Winding up to a degree that seems like it's about to explode. I'll just put on Master of Puppets and all eight children, yes, eight children, go bat crap insane. They're just flying out. All the adults are mad. And you're like, please turn off the meal. No, oh my God, it's too late. It's like, but it's fun. They party together. Now, I realize that, you know, party is still a loaded term in our culture, but why should they define what a party is? I love to have long, energetic, celebratory time with close friends filled with music and laughter and food. I've never been drunk. I've never even had any alcohol. I don't sleep around. I don't have hangovers. I don't throw up. It sounds a lot better to me personally. Maybe I'm a square. I don't know. None of those things appeal to me. but partying does appeal to me now before we end let me just remind you guys that to practice celebration also means that you are going to have to go to war with the status quo I think that we can't end without saying this it's not enough just to fill your mind with good things with joy you will have to draw your attention away from things that deprive your joy and I think the biggest easiest example of this is that you will need to put down your phone I was reading an interview with musician Trent Reznor a couple of weeks ago in which he was lamenting the fallout, you know, of the digital age of music, and he admitted that it's just the way it is, it's, it's the way that things are going to be. So he kind of said that like refusing to grapple with the new way of things is like being a guy who works at a fax machine store mad that no one wants to buy a fax machine, <laughs> um, meaning that we have access to technology. It's not going on any- anywhere, and I realize technology can be tremendously helpful, it can be great, but to keep it from ruling over us, we have to discipline ourselves. A few years ago, um, I turned my smartphone into a dumb phone by deleting the social media apps, deleting the internet, yes, the whole internet, deleting YouTube, deleting the news feed apps, all that stuff. And I realized that like even though there's barely anything <laughs> left on it, it can still really distract me. So I've just taken up this new practice um, in just really the last couple of days after hearing about it from a friend. At a set time in the evening, turn my phone off, put it away, preferably on the other side of the house, so that in the morning, the first thing I do is not to reach for my phone. I don't turn it on again until I've spent time with my family, with God, had breakfast and coffee. And I know some of you guys are probably tuning me out. They're like, man, that guy's nuts. I'm not doing any of that stuff. Maybe he, he's an alarmist. He's over the top. But listen, I am convinced that what's on your phone, and namely what I mean is like, Um, The cesspool of social media, the news media, it exists to drain your mind and your soul of meaningful life. It is a sad, empty mirage of personal connectedness in which every single participant presents a shallow avatar of their actual person with a curated veneer of the life that they'd like you to see. But you don't need that crap to be happy. You don't need the crap that it's selling you. You don't need the cute outfits and the home decoration and the beach bodies and the vacation destinations and on down the list. I'm not saying that it's inherently evil to use Instagram, not at all. But I am convinced that we could all do with a lot less of it. A lot less of our phones in general, I think. Headlines generated by the sensational for-profit news media to shock and scare and outrage you all the time. Tweets that are crafted to mock other people and to make someone else feel clever and to gripe and complain about the state of the world. Pictures that are staged to incite envy and admiration, but they are a sham. They're a wash and a lie. My point is that when you fill your mind with this stuff, every spare second of the day, you drain your capacity for joy with vapid, doped up catatonic emptiness. I know that sounds extreme, but it's serious. You don't have to throw your phone out. I still have mine. You don't have to do the dumb phone thing if you don't want to. You don't have to put it, you know, turn it off at the end of the night and all that stuff. Though honestly, I would sincerely recommend that. Every single person that I talk to has a smartphone. I would recommend the dumb phone thing and putting your phone, turning it off at night, putting it on the other side of the room. But whatever it is that you choose to do, you, we have to find a way to get out of the chaos of digital addiction if we are going to learn to be a people who are innately joyful. We have to find ways to reach for joy the way that we have been trained to reach for our phones like a reflex. For some of you, I realize joy comes naturally. Thank God for you. We need you. It comes more naturally for you than other people. I don't think of myself as like a somber person per se. Not at all, but... Sometimes joy doesn't come all that naturally. I can be melancholy. I can be moody and pessimistic. And yet, I'm convinced that through apprenticeship to Jesus, I can learn the art of joy. Why in the world should I be resigned to gloominess? I won't. I won't be. If Jesus is the happiest person ever, and if I am called to become like him, then it is something that I can do together with the family of God. May we learn the art of celebration and joy may all of us go this week and practice the spiritual discipline of celebration with that in mind let's pray before we worship